So in the meantime, open your Bibles with me to John chapter 13, and let's prepare for the end. We will finish up John 13 this morning. I will read verses 31 through the end of the chapter. I invite you to listen appropriately to God's Word. Therefore, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you right now? I will lay my life down for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So read the words of the living God. Father, we ask you to be with us now as we look into your word. Already there is conviction as we think about Peter and how often we are like Peter, in this new commandment that our Lord has given us, we're familiar with it, but would you give us a fresh awareness of it and a greater zeal to obey our King until that day in the end when we will be with you forever. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as we continue our look at John 13 and into 14 and 15 in the upcoming weeks, uh, we're in this, uh, this section that fits our church calendar with Holy Week. Holy Week is that week where that starts on, on, uh, on uh, what's the first part? Palm Sunday, thank you, and then goes through Easter. How many of you grew up in churches that uh, made a big deal of Holy Week? Let me see your hands. Where it was a, it was a, every year is a big, big deal. I mean, compared to us, we, compared to many, we do not make a big deal of Holy Week. For some, it, is a, it takes over the entire week. It's, it's, a, it's a very big week, starting with Palm Sunday. And, and some of you grew up in, uh, in churches like that. On Thursday of Holy Week, there's a name for it. Who can tell me what the name for Thursday is? 
Monday, Thursday. Do you know where Monday, Thursday comes from? Monday. Yeah, no, it's not Monday. Monday. It's different. Monday would be on Monday. Monday, Thursday comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of this text. It means new commandment. Monday is from mandatum, the mandate that is given, the new uh, mandatum novum, the, the new commandment or new mandate that's given from this text right there. So there you go. That's free information. I'm not going to charge you for that piece. From this section right here, it's Monday, Thursday, leading into Passover, and then, of course, the cross. And the setting of this is Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. At the upper room, uh, someone has loaned out this second story room for him to give his final words to his disciples. And the verse that I read to you at the beginning, verse 31, begins kind of ominously, therefore, when he, when Judas had gone out, then Jesus says these words. We looked at this last week. Judas has made his decision. Judas, who walked with Jesus for three years, who saw the amazing miracles that, that Jesus performed, who heard Jesus teach with authority, Judas, who had every reason to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, it was all right there in front of him, Judas has made his decision. He's not for Jesus. And he has just been told by Jesus, Jesus says, I, I know it's you. Go do what you're going to do and do it quickly. And Judas departs on his path to bring the enemies of Christ to arrest him, which would lead into Good Friday and so on. He's made his decision. We need to at least stop for a moment and ask ourselves, are we sure of our decision? We are not of those who shrink back. We are those who are committed. May that be true of all of us. The writer of Hebrews warns, Make sure that none of us, none of you come short, but that we hold fast to the end, that, that none of us would have the unbelieving heart, that while it is still called today, be committed to the end, and don't be deceived by sin. Judas was deceived by sin. The voices in his, said, in his head said, Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is not your savior. Jesus is a fraud. We need to end his reign, his ministry. May it not be true of any of us that we would agree with Judas. May we be committed to the end. So Judas has gone out, and Jesus sees that as the sign now to share with his disciples his final words before he dies. And over the next several chapters, we get those final words. And many of these themes we will see over and over again. Here he says, now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Whenever we see this phrase, Son of Man, we should think back to Daniel chapter 7. Now, I spent some time reading that a few weeks ago when he talked about himself as the Son of Man. I'm just going to quote it back to you, but remember, 600 years prior to the coming of Jesus... 
Daniel saw this vision, this very strange vision. These creatures with heads of animals, and they're flying around, and then the ten horns and the beasts, and they're crying out and all this stuff. And then in the middle of this strange vision, he sees a man, or at least a figure, who's in a white robe, and his hair is white like wool, and he is sitting on a throne that's on fire. He's on the throne, and it's, it's a fiery throne. And this throne has wheels, and the wheels are fire. And coming out of the middle of it is a river of fire. That would get your attention, would it not? And this man is not burning up on this throne of fire. And Daniel says, I'm watching all this, and, and there are myriads upon myriads, tens of thousands of ten thousands of people down, bowing down before him, and there, there's men, people sitting on thrones, and the, the book is open. This is a, a courtroom scene. And then he says, I saw one like a son of man who comes up to that one on the throne, and to this one like a son of man who comes the man sitting on the throne, or the, the being sitting on the throne, the ancient of days he is called, he gives to this son of man dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all nations on planet earth would be given to this one who's like a son of man, and they would all bow down and worship what Daniel saw six centuries before the coming of Christ was the glorification of Jesus. Jesus ascending to the throne where he would reign over heaven and earth. And Jesus now is fully self-aware that now that Judas has gone out to bring his betrayers, the time has come for him to take his throne. But he knows that in order to receive his crown on his head, he has to receive a crown of thorns on his head. And he has to receive nails in his hands. And he has to hang on a cross and be rejected by all peoples, including his own father. He knows that is the path to his reign. A couple songs ago, we sang, Lead Me to the Cross. It was wonderful hearing everybody saying, Lead me to the cross. Lead me to the cross. We are so familiar with this idea of the cross that we're not nauseous when we sing about the cross. Many of you have jewelry on your being of a cross. Maybe you have rings, maybe you have bracelets, maybe you have a cross on the front of your Bible. Maybe you have a cross in ink on your skin. We have a huge cross right there. And none of you walked in here thinking, ooh, did you? Suppose a friend of yours invited you to his worship service. He's not a Christian. He's some other religion. He invited you and, and you decided to go because you're hoping maybe he'll come to you, come with you to church sometime. So you decided to go to the worship service of his religion. And you walk in and on the wall when you walk in is a giant replica of a gas chamber. 
or an electric chair or a giant syringe. And you ask, what in the world is that? Oh, that represents lethal injection. How long would you stay? I'm out of here. You guys are whacked. You realize the cross is the same thing as all three of those. It was a grotesque, obscene symbol of the worst kind of execution and capital punishment there was. And we come in here singing, lead me to the cross, this is great. Lead me to the electric chair. Lead me to the gas chamber. Lead me to the firing squad. Yeah, we don't, we don't, we forget that's what we're singing. Why? Because Jesus going and suffering that execution on our behalf is what gives us hope. Every single one of us deserves not just temporal execution, but eternal execution by God himself. And Jesus took that for us. When he says, now is the Son of Man glorified, he knows that the way to that throne is the cross. But it's time. It's going to happen now. It's immediate, he says. And then he begins to give them some, some last-minute instructions. And I love, he, calls, he says, little children. You know, he's been the rabbi, the, the teacher, He's the Lord. He's Messiah. He's king. He will say, I'm now your friend. But here, he says, little children. The setting is the upper room again, and, and he's been with his disciples as their rabbi, as their teacher, but now he's taking on the role of the head of the household. And he's gathering them around as, as, the, as a father blessing his children before he departs. And he's offering this tender instruction to them. Little children, he says. I'm with you a little while longer. You'll seek me. You'll, you'll want to be with me. And I said this before the Jews. I said to them, where I'm going, you can't come. And remember, they all thought, what? Is he, is he going to go kill himself? What does he mean we can't go? And the, the apostles were like, yeah, you tell them, Jesus. We're with you, though. And now Jesus says to his disciples, know where I'm going? Even you can't come with me. Jesus had to go to the cross alone. What he had to do, he had to do just him and the Father. He says, I'm going, and I told the Jews this, and now I'm telling you, you can't come with me. But here's the command I give you. The new commandment, he calls it. Love one another. Three times he says it. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Little children, love each other. Here's the question. What's new about that? He says it's a new commandment. 
It's in the Old Covenant. Love the Lord. Love your neighbor. This is not really new to love one another. The New, the new Testament is going to go on and say this is all the law and the prophets. Love. Well, if that's what the law and the prophets were pointing toward, what's new about this? Why is there a Monday Thursday? I think it's in the phrase, even as I have loved you. The kind of love that Jesus demonstrates has not been modeled for his disciples. This is a new kind of love, a new expression of love. So that raises the question, how did Jesus love them? Before I tell you what it is, let me tell you what it isn't. Jesus did not love them with a sentimental, squishy, make-everybody-feel-good kind of niceness. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus is not really very nice? Jesus doesn't seem very concerned with how his people feel. Have you ever noticed that? He doesn't start any of his statements with, now I don't want to hurt your feelings, but... He didn't do that. Get behind me, Satan, he says to Peter. His disciples are saying, hey, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and consume these dogs? And Jesus says, you guys are out of your mind. You don't, you don't know what spirit you're of. He's not very nice. He's not politically correct. He has no problem talking to the woman at the well. Hey, go get your husband. Look, I, I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I know your life experience has not been all that um, easy. No, no, he says, go get your husband, ma'am. Well, I don't have a husband. You're right. You've been shacking up with all kinds of guys, including the one you're with now, and he's not your husband. Pretty straightforward, pretty direct. Wouldn't fit well in our, uh, in our culture, even among Christians. Like, oh, you got to be nice to everybody. you got to make them feel good. That's how Jesus was. How did he model love? Number one, he taught his disciples how to please the Father. That's what he cared about more than anything else. He taught his disciples how to please the Father over and over and over again. Here's how to obey Here's the truth. Here's what the Father expects of you. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. How do we love one another? We have to encourage one another to obey him. Speak truth. Be more concerned for people's sanctification than we are if they like us or not. Preach the truth. That's what Jesus did for his disciples. He loved them enough to say the hard things. Secondly, he showed them how to please the Father. From the very beginning all the way through to the end, he did it before them. He was forbearing, he was patient, and he was holy. He was able to say, come follow me. I will show you how to please the Father. That's love. Is there anything more important for us to do than to please God? We got to show each other. Love says, 
Come follow me as I follow Christ. I will show you. I will set an example for you how you can please him. That's way more loving than making sure people feel good about themselves. Show them. Thirdly, he used his power and authority to serve others. We saw this recently. He took up the towel of the slave and washed their feet. And he said, you all need to do this for each other. Serve. Your mindset is, how do I help them be more faithful? How do I serve them? No one in this room is beneath your dignity. No one in your household is beneath your dignity. You're not up here and other Christians down here. No, you and I say, I will get down and take the role of the servant for the good of someone else. That's what Jesus did. That's how he loved us. Our mindset followed by our actions of humility, true Christ-like humility. That's how he loved his disciples. And he says, I'm telling you, love one another. It's not a feeling. It's not flattery. It's not sentiment. It's not being nice. It's about hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being humble enough to serve one another. That's how Jesus loved his disciples. And he served us all the way to the end of going to the cross. So the question is, did they get it? Did they do this? They did. We see in the book of Acts, just a short time after this, we see that thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And at the end of that chapter, as these people have put their faith in Jesus and received the power of the Holy Spirit, they immediately start loving one another. And it says they had all things in common. People sold their property to take care of brothers and sisters who were poor. They brought their money to the apostles and laid it at the apostles' feet and said, here, use this money to take care of those who are in need. They met together in homes and they had food together and they prayed together and day by day, it says, they spent time together and they preached the gospel together because they loved each other. They got it. They taught each other. They, they shared the apostles' teaching because they wanted to grow in, in their righteousness. They were for each other as this great, almost uh, this communal group pursuing righteousness. They did it. And it continued from that generation to the next one to the next one. I'm going I'm to read to you uh, a fairly long passage written by a man named Tertullian. Tertullian was a, a second century pastor in Carthage. And if you want to know more about Tertullian, come tomorrow night to Dwight's class. Have you covered Tertullian yet? Tomorrow night. See, it's timely. We can handle all of you. We'll just bring the class in here. Come and Dwight will tell you more. So uh, this guy was, was writing to the civil magistrate, to the, to the governors, to the rulers of the Roman Empire because Christians were under regular persecution and there was all kinds of distortions about what Christians were doing and not doing and they were perceived to be a threat to the empire. 
The culture did not like Christians very much. The government did not like Christians very much. And Tertullian uh, wrote a bunch of uh, apologies. Now, I have to define that term. When we use apology today, it means I'm sorry, right? If you offer an apology, you say I'm sorry. Well, Tertullian was not offering a bunch of I'm sorry's about the Christian faith. Apology at its root means a defense. He's giving a defense of Christianity. And he's trying to explain to the, to the magistrate, we're not a threat. We are good citizens. It's good for the kingdom that the church is here. And this one is Apology 39. And he says these things. He says, I shall at once go on then to exhibit the peculiarities of the Christian society. That as I have refuted the evil charged against us, I may point out its positive good. So this Christian society, I told you how we're not evil. Now I'm going to tell you how we are good. He says, we are a body knit together as such by a common religious profession, by unity of discipline, and by the bond of a common hope. So, so, so we're together here, we, have our, we, we profess the same thing religiously, we, we're unified in our discipline, and we have a common hope. We meet together as an assembly and congregation that offering up prayer to God as with united force, we may wrestle with him in our supplications, this violence God delights in. I love that. He says, we come together and we wrestle with God together. And God loves that. It's kind of convicting for me, thinking when we gather in our small groups and other times, do we wrestle together with God, pleading, urgently calling out to Him? I love how He describes that. And God, He says, He, rejo- he, he delights in this, this violent, take, violent taking of the kingdom almost. Anyway, that's not why we're here, but I love that. I'm giving you all kinds of free stuff today. We pray, too, for the emperors, for the ministers, and for all in authority, for the welfare of the world, for the prevalence of peace, for the delay of the final consummation. He says, we're not a threat to you. We pray for you. We pray for the king. We pray for governors, for for peace. And we even pray that Jesus won't return yet. Isn't that interesting? We're told to pray for him to come, but he's saying, look, There's a sense in which we pray that he won't come back yet because you all will be destroyed. So we're praying for your sakes that he would be patient so you have time to repent. That's that's the implication. We assemble to read our sacred writings. That's the Bible. If any peculiarity of the times makes either forewarning or reminiscence needful. We read our writings and then we think, wait, do we need to go back and review what is predicted or talk about what's coming. They're aware of what's going on in in the culture. However it be in that respect, with the sacred words, we nourish our faith, we animate our hope, and we make our confidence more steadfast. And no less, by inculcations of God's precepts, we confirm good habits that's a lot of big words, are inculcations. That's teaching, steady teaching. It's what I'm doing here. I'm inculcating you. I'm teaching you. We have these repeated teachings on God's commands so that we can form good habits. We're not a bunch of evil people. 
we're pursuing righteousness. We love one another enough to encourage one another to obey God. That's good for the culture. That's good for the empire, he's saying. In the same place also, exhortations are made, rebukes, and sacred censures are administered. Again, lots of big words. We don't use all those words anymore. But he's saying when we come together, we exhort one another. We call each other to righteousness. We speak words to one another saying, you should stop doing that and start doing this to please the Lord. That's good for society when Christians are pursuing righteousness. Our sacred censures, a censure is a, is a type of rebuke, right? They're administered, he said. For with a great gravity, that's a great weight, is the work of judging carried on among us. All we hear about today is judge not lest you be judged, judge not. Tertullian's saying early in the church, we judged one another. Not condemning one another. That's not it. Not holding up our nose or looking down at our nose to others and saying, I'm better than you. But judging one another from the standpoint of saying, hey, I'm evaluating you, you evaluate me. We both need each other to walk down the path of righteousness. It's a good thing. We are told to do that over and over again. This judging carried on among us as befits those who feel assured that they are in the sight of God. Quorum Deo, we live in the face of God. And you, we all live in the face of God and we need to remind each other of that. He says, and you have the most notable example of judgment to come when anyone has sinned so grievously as to require his severance from us in prayer, in the congregation, and in all sacred intercourse. What he's saying is we even practice church discipline, that we don't tolerate grievous sin in our midst. He's saying this should be good news to our civil leaders that we rebuke and discipline those who violate God's commands. The tried men of our elders preside over us, obtaining that honor not by purchase, but by established character. You don't get to become an elder for a fee. There is no buying and selling of any sort in the things of God. Though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money as of a religion that has its price. On the monthly day, see, we've improved over that. We collect every week instead of every month. On the monthly day, if he likes, each puts a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure and only if he be able, for there is no compulsion. All is voluntary. We're not one of those religions that, that requires people to give their money. We're just saying, hey, if you want to give to this cause, give it. It's all voluntary. These gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund. I like that. Piety's deposit fund. We should change our general fund name to piety's deposit fund. Get our treasurer on that. For they are not taken thence and spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents, 
and of old persons confined now to the house. Such too as such have suffered shipwreck, literal shipwreck, like people are in a boat and it capsizes and they're, they're stuck out in the middle of nowhere and they don't have anything. He said, we help them. And if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. We give to take care of our poor brothers and sisters who are in need, he says. He says, it is good. Look at our example. Look who we are. Look how we're good for society. More to the point. But it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. He's saying their people in their culture have a label for us and they look down upon us because of our love for one another. See, they say, see how they love one another? For themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they are ready to even die for one another? For they themselves will sooner put to death. Now, the language is kind of hard. He's, he's going back and forth. What they're saying is they love one another. They would die for each other. But the culture would say, uh-uh, I'm not going to die for you. I'm going to put you to death. Huge contrast between the way Christians were living and the way the pagans were living. And they are wroth with us. Another good word. They hate us. They are angry at us. They are wroth with us too because we call each other brethren. Because we call each other brothers and sisters, they're angry at us. How much more fittingly are they called and counted brothers who have been led to the knowledge of God as their common father, who have drunk in one spirit of holiness, who from the same womb of a common ignorance have agonized into the same light of truth. But on this very account, perhaps, we are regarded as having less claim to be held true brothers, that no tragedy makes a noise about our brotherhood, or that the family possessions which generally destroy brotherhood among you create fraternal bonds among us. What he's saying is, you all bite, fight and bicker so much about everything, about who owns what and property, and we give to one another, we care for one another, and that's why we call each other brothers, and the world does not know what to do with that. And so they despise us because we treat each other like family. One in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us but our wives. <laughs> I love that. And then he goes on and explains how they share their wives, which is wicked in God's sight. And we have everything in common except our spouses. <laughs> we don't share those. This is one Christian's testimony to a pagan world. It says, this is how we know we are Christians. This is how you know we're Christians. This is why we are good for society, because we love one another. So here we are, 1,800 years after them. Could we write the same letter to the mayor of Colorado Springs? Could we, could we write a similar 
defense to the governor of Colorado, to our congressman? Could we at Front Range Alliance Church write this letter and say, look how we love one another. Don't be opposed to us. Don't try to squash us. Don't penalize us. We're good for the city, for the state. Look how we pursue good things, righteous things. Look how we love one another. What do you think? Now, if you immediately went to what someone else is not doing in this room, you're missing the point. Could we use an example of you to say, exhibit A, look what he or she did and is doing that shows we love one another? I think we could. I don't think it would take very long to compile a pretty awesome list of ways the people in this room love one another. As a pastor, I get to hear a lot of this. I get to observe it. I get to hear the testimonies of people who are called to account by a brother or sister, who are encouraged to keep pressing on, to overcome sin, to live righteously. I get to hear the stories of someone who says, there just was an envelope stuck in my box anonymously that had $300 cash in it, and I needed it. And you all don't get to hear all those stories necessarily, but I get to hear a bunch of them. And it's good. And we keep going, keep going, and excel still more. But Jesus says, this is how they will know you are my disciples. Notice he didn't say... This is how they'll know your disciples. You go to church on Sunday morning. He didn't say that. This is how they will know you're my disciples. You send your kids to a Christian school. Or you homeschool. It's not on the list. He certainly didn't say they will know you're my disciples because you vote Republican. This is how they will know that you are my disciples. You love one another. Here it's not love the world. Here it's not love your neighbor. Here it's your love for one another, the body of Christ, Christians. You know, we are called to love everybody. We're called to love God. We're called to love our neighbor. We're even called to love our enemies. That pretty much covers the gamut, right? That woman you gave me, yeah, love her. She's my enemy, I know, love her. Right? We're called to love everyone, but especially the household of faith. Paul says that, do good to all but especially Christians. Remember Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats? Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. And he says to the goats, I was naked, you didn't clothe me, I was hungry, you didn't feed me, and so on. And they said, when, Lord? And then he turns to the sheep, he says, you, I was naked, and you, you put clothes on me, I was hungry, you fed me. And they said, when, Lord? Do you remember his answer? 
whenever you did any of these good things to one of my brothers, not to the world, not to unbelievers, when you do good to my brothers, you did it to me. We're the body of Christ. We are to give special deference to the body of Christ and show our love. On the road to Damascus, when God strikes Paul blind, he says to Saul, before he, called him, before he was called Paul in, in Acts, he says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Remember that? Well, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus was in heaven. Who was Saul persecuting? His body. The church. And Jesus said, I take that personally. That's my body. That's my people, my bride, and you're hurting my bride. We're to love his bride with an extra special love. And when we do that, the whole world will know we're Christians because they've never seen the kind of love that Christians have for each other. Sacrifice, saying the hard thing, not being nice and sentimental, but actually pushing people toward righteousness, being willing for someone to be mad at you because you call them out so that they can be more righteous. Jesus says, that shows the world a difference. Well, he goes on, and he has much more to say about this same thing, and he'll repeat these themes over and over and over again, but he doesn't get to finish his instruction yet because Peter does what Peter does. He was silent, you know, the whole thing about who's going to betray me, but it didn't last long. He found his voice. Simon Peter interrupts him, Lord, where are you going? What do you mean you're going somewhere? Where are you going? Jesus says, Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. What? Peter says, why can't I follow you right now? I'm Peter. I will lay down my life for you, Lord. There's no way you can't go anywhere. Go ahead. You just try to get away from me. I'll take a bullet. I'll take a train. I'll take anything. You can't get away from me. I will lay down my life. It'll be my, over my dead body will you go somewhere that I can't follow you. That's basically what he's saying. Jesus answered, will you? Will you, Peter? You'll lay down your life for me? Really, Peter? Peter, it's late. In a few hours, the sun's going to come up. And we all know why the sun rises. Because the rooster crows. The rooster didn't crow, the sun wouldn't know to come up. But that rooster's going to crow. And before that rooster does, Peter, not once, not twice, but three times, you're going to deny even knowing me. You will lay down your life for me, Peter? No, you won't. 
Luke's gospel tells us that after Peter, I mean, after Jesus is arrested, taken to the priest's house, and they start hurling accusations at him and so on, somebody comes up and says, hey, you, what's your name, Peter? You're with him, right? Nope. Somebody else comes over, hey, didn't I see you hanging out with him? No. I don't know the man, I tell you. Someone else comes and says, come on, you're a Galilean, I can tell by your accent. You're definitely with that guy. He's a Galilean too, I think. And Peter, the scripture says, cursed him. Something like, damn you, I don't know the man. And Luke tells us the rooster crowed and Jesus, wherever he was, turned and looked Peter in the eye. Can you imagine? Just a knife through the gut. You're going to give your life for me, are you, Peter? My worst possible moment, you're going to claim you don't even know who I am. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. This sermon could have been the tale of two betrayers. We had one betrayer who turned his back on Jesus, went and drugged the enemies out and said, there he is, go get him. And then when he realized what he had done, he went and hanged himself in unbelief. Peter repented, and Jesus forgave him. We'll get to this in a few years in chapter 21. <laughs> but you remember three times Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, then tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Oh, yes, Lord, why do you keep asking me this? Well, let's see. <laughs> yes, Lord, you know I do. Then take care of my flock. I love that. I love that. There is grace, there is forgiveness. For sinners. Even the worst kind of sinner, like betraying Jesus, if we repent, says, I forgive you, now go get to work for my kingdom. Why could he do that? Because he's going to the cross. He's going to take upon himself the punishment that Peter deserved for his sin. He took upon himself the punishment that every one of us deserves. No matter what you have done last week, last month, last year, last 10 years, come 
in repentance, receive forgiveness, and turn around and go forward and please Jesus. He paid the price. Your sins are forgiven. And now love one another. Let's pray. Father, at some level, we can all resonate with Peter. We've been a little sheepish when someone asks if we're a Christian. Or we've said one thing here on Sunday morning and done other things through the week. Whatever the case, Father, lead us to the cross. And then lead us from the cross to serve you with our lives and to show the world a love like they've never imagined. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.